Welcome to the Shift Podcast. This podcast was recorded on the traditional territory of the Anishinaabe and Haudenosaunee people. The creators of this podcast recognize that we are all treaty people and we accept our collective responsibility to each other and to reconciliation as we work towards an equitable, inclusive, and accessible campus for all. On the Shift podcast, facilitated by the Student Experience Office, you will hear from students of diverse backgrounds about their lived experiences at Queen's, how these experiences are shaped by identity, their visions for a safer and more inclusive campus climate, and what needs to happen for there to be a meaningful and lasting culture shift. Kingstonians think I'm not quite a Kingstonian for going to Queen's, but then Queen's students think I'm not quite a Queen's student from being from Kingston. Obviously, like the university can implement policies or programs or add more resources or whatever it may be to make the campus more inclusive. But ultimately, the only way for it to be the most inclusive it can be is for the people themselves to change. Um, And I smile every time I walk through a door that has safe space and a pride flag on it. Um, And that just makes me feel at home. Listeners will also learn about resources that exist for equity-deserving students at Queen's and hear tips for where to find community and support. This podcast is part of the Queen's Shift Project, a collection of initiatives aimed at creating a safer and more inclusive campus culture for all students. Hi, everyone. Um, Today on the Shift Podcast, we have two very special guests. Um, they're here to join us to talk about a little bit um, on their Queen's experience. Um, but first, uh, please introduce yourselves. Hi, everyone. I'm Sam. Um, I'm a fifth year bio major and math minor here at Queen's, and my pronouns are they, them. Hey, and uh, my name's Kai Sealagan. Um, I'm a third year history and global development joint honors. Um, and uh, my pronouns are he, him. Awesome. So I want to get into a little bit why you both chose Queens. Like what communities did you come from? Um, Was it a natural decision? Kai, maybe you could start with this. (laughs) Yeah. So I'm, I'm originally from Alberta. I was born in Calgary, but um, I sort of grew up in a smaller city, smaller than Kingston called uh, Lethbridge. Um, It's uh, I sort of describe it as um, a rural city, if that makes sense. So mm-hmm. it is a city, but um, a lot of the people are from farming backgrounds and a lot of people have connections to like rural life, I guess. Mm-hmm. Um, anyway, I sort of, there is a university in Lethbridge, but I, I'm a little more ambitious than that university. So I wanted to come out somewhere where I feel like I could get connected to more opportunities. Um, and I guess I just settled on Queens here. <laughs> fun that's also very far though was that like an easy transition uh yeah I mean I wouldn't say it was difficult at all I mean of course it's always weird when you move away from home and um you don't really know anyone out here I mean I'm sure it's a little different if you're from Oshawa or Toronto and you can just go back for like the weekend or something not not as easy when you're from Alberta (laughs) but um yeah I mean I, I don't think it was too bad but I know for many people it can be difficult especially when you're going into a place with no sort of support network or anything Mm -hmm. 
Sam, what about you? Why Queens? Yeah, so my experience is actually very different from that. I was born in Kingston. I've lived in Kingston my whole life. Um, and I actually originally went to U Ottawa. I went there for my first year. Um, and about halfway through, um, just after Christmas, actually, I was thinking, you know what, maybe U Ottawa is like not the place for me. And I had originally wanted to go to Queens anyway. I got in like after grade 12, but I just decided to go to U, U Ottawa. So I decided to actually reapply to Queens and transfer. Uh, so I transferred to Queens for my second semester and I love it. And I'm super glad that I made that decision. Uh, Queens is just, I just love the, honestly, what drew me was the academics because the academics here are a little bit different than Uwadawa. Um, And that was something that I really wanted to challenge myself with as well. Mm-hmm. And did you find like the environment different as in like maybe the different types of people, um, like the diversity of people, like how would you compare your experience? Yeah, they're actually quite similar in terms of diversity, I would say, because um, a lot of people that go to U Ottawa are actually from Ottawa and Ottawa is very diverse. Um, so in terms of that, it's um, pretty much the same. But coming from high school and going to uh, Queens, Kingston is typically a very uh, white city. And so then uh, it's not as diverse, but then Queens itself is extremely diverse in that aspect. Um, and that was something that was uh, very uh, new to me to experience. But I also am so glad that I have those opportunities now. Mm-hmm. I feel like it's so nice to jump out of the pond for a little bit, see kind of what's out there and then make an informed decision. And like, if that's not the right thing place for you, you know, make a decision that fits better for like what your life is. But Kai, I want to understand a little bit more about your transition. So like, how has your experience been at Queens? Would you think it's completely different from your rural city as you described it um, in Alberta? Yeah, well, uh, man, I got a lot to say about this, I think. But um, I guess, uh, first of all, um, as far as my experience at Queens go, it it kind of feels like it's almost just starting. So like I'm in my third year, my first year was all online, like a quarter of my second year was online. And even when it wasn't online, there were so many restrictions that you couldn't really do anything with anyone. You couldn't meet people. So really this feels like my first year where I'm actually connecting with like the Queens community and getting more involved in like extracurriculars and all that. Um, But so far, I mean, so far I'm enjoying it. Um, and uh, it, as far as how it's different from what I'm used to, um, so Kingston is not too much larger than my home city, but it feels very different. And I think part of it is because it's a university city. So the demographics in terms of age are very different. I sort of, I feel like if you were to go to Lethbridge, it would feel sort of like a retirement city where people go to retire. It's, it's just that a lot of the young people sort of emigrate, I guess, to university elsewhere. So um, it feels nice, I guess, to be surrounded by people that I can relate to more. It's also um, more diverse than I'm used to, I guess. Um, Because, I mean, where I'm from is Southern Alberta, so it's sort of like the heartland of like, (laughs) I don't know, it's sort of like uh, the Bible Belt's like heartland of conservatism in Canada, which... um, is interesting, I guess. <laughs> um, yeah. But uh, yeah, it's so, you know, 
even Kingston itself feels like very progressive and very diverse from what I'm used to, which is strange when I meet people from Toronto, they say it feels the opposite of that. So, you know, it's just, it's just, uh, I guess my background makes me mm-hmm. see Kingston in a different way than some other people maybe. I would also agree that Kingston is more on like, it's not conservative, but it is more conservative than the Queens community makes it feel like. Cause obviously growing up here, um, it's, kind of known as like a hick town like um that's just like what Kingston is known as except for the university district which is I think a really interesting contrast between this the city itself and then the university it's almost like like a little island in Kingston that's kind of sitting on its own which is very interesting so Sam you said like there's a university bubble as per se and as, as someone from Toronto and someone who worked outside of that university for um, bubble for a bit. I can definitely say that there's definitely a difference between university campus and then Kingston. But Sam, can you expand a little bit more about like why or how you feel it's different and like why you feel it's per- more progressive than Kingston, I guess? Yeah, for sure. One thing about Kingston in particular outside of Queens, it's that it's not very diverse um, in the type of people that live here. Um, it's uh, it's it's almost kind of like the newlyweds and the nearly deads is kind of like what Kingston is. Um, and most people like will come to Queens for their university degree and then leave um, and go to a different uh, city for uh, like post-secondary secondary opportunities. Um, so in terms of that, there's not a lot of newness coming into Kingston um, and Uh, That makes it kind of like less of a university town because no one stays after university. Everyone just leaves to go somewhere else. Um, And so there's definitely a strong separation between the Kingston community and the Queens community. I would say especially as well, a lot of Kingstonians um, don't see Queens students as like nice. I don't know how to to, like word that. That's valid. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. there's just a lot of uh, conflict between um, Kingstonians and Queen students um, for a lot of different reasons. Homecoming is one of them. Um, also, a lot of Kingstonians just see Queen students as uh, rich students that only got into Queens based on their parents' merit. Um, and there's a lot of judgment from the Kingston community onto Queens because of that. Mm-hmm. So do you feel like there is a personal or internal challenge, I guess, like balancing like your experience as a Queen student and your identity as a Kingstonian? Do you feel like there has been any like, I guess, benefit to you also um, to, to your personal identity as a Queen student? Yeah, so I uh, work outside of Queens. I've always worked um, just like in the Kingston um, environment. And one thing that I noticed specifically um, right when the pandemic first hit, a lot of people at my job who were not Queen students and a lot of them also didn't have any post-secondary education were um, complaining to me about Queen's behavior in terms of the pandemic and still throwing parties as a lot of student houses were still doing, but they were doing that in every university city. 
Um, but the Kingstonians just feel like putting a lot of um, backlash onto Queen students for things that aren't necessarily our fault. And I hear a lot of that because they complain to me as a Queen student, but then they'll turn around and go, oh, but not you though. Like, I know it's not you. And no, it's not me, but you don't know that. Um, <laughs> so it's just very interesting that they they assume that just because I'm from Kingston, I'm not like other Queen students. And then similarly, Queen students also assume that I'm not like other Queen students because I'm from Kingston. Because it's very unusual for a, a person from Kingston to actually go to Queens because most people want to leave Kingston. Uh, so it's it's very interesting in terms of that, that like, Kingstonians think I'm not quite a Kingstonian for going to Queens, but then Queens students think I'm not quite a Queens student from being from Kingston. That's very, very interesting. Kai, you were talking a little bit about how you feel like Kingston is more um, significantly, I guess, more progressive than what you're used to in Alberta. Um, can you speak a little bit to like your own personal experiences and maybe your own identities um, that have given you that impression? Uh, yeah, well, I mean, I'll start by saying uh, the progressive bar is not a high one to set when you're comparing <laughs> to Lethbridge. Um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, I mean, where I come from is, um, y- y- it's very white, but there are like minority groups. So myself, obviously. Um, but I- I'd say probably the largest like immigrant populations would be um, uh, maybe like Japanese, Filipino, for the most part, they're still very much a minority, which is strange when you get to places like Toronto, Montreal, even Kingston in some cases where it doesn't even feel like, at least to me, it doesn't feel like, you know, non-white people are a minority, which is interesting. Mm-hmm. And besides and besides that too, um, it almost feels like, uh, at least where I'm from, I, I don't know exactly how to describe this, but um, it feels like things like race or gender identity or whatever it may be are sort of things that I don't want to say are swept under the rug, but things that people just don't talk about really and don't. And, you know, it might be different in minority communities within those areas. But me personally, like my background is Indonesian, Southeast Asian, and there isn't an Indonesian community there. So um, for me, it was sort of like most of my friends were white. And so stuff like that so not really like people I can relate to um, and honestly like race wasn't something I thought of very much until I came to Kingston and came to university and it was so like almost omnipresent in like all discussions and um, in one in one sense it was like a little off-putting at first because I was like oh whatever it's just like you know it can't be that important or whatever and then when I started to like really think about it and started to get um, more involved in different communities and stuff I was like realized I'm like, oh, you know, this, the stuff that they talk about in like universities is real stuff. And then, you know, I, I don't know if this is making sense, but no, a hundred percent it is anyway. Yeah. So like, for me, it's just, I guess that's sort of where it stems from is the idea that like race, it feels like, like race and um, gender, like I said, and whatever it may be are things that just people don't really talk about unless you're sort of part of those communities and really adamant about it but even then like it's not something that is the center of discussion a lot of the time whereas here it feels like that's sort of plastered on all the you know university billboards and everything which is a good thing in my opinion but Mm -hmm. uh, yeah it's just it's just 
I don't know. That's my experience with that, I guess. Yeah. I, I always find that, um, sometimes when people don't know a lot about a subject, they, or they don't have a lot of experience about it. They try, they think the most educated thing to do is not talk about it and just like not really engage in conversation about it. But we find in Kingston and a lot of different areas that um, the first step to making change is acknowledgement. And so that's why a lot of classrooms um, and a lot of different settings bring these discussions such as race and gender identity and a hundred other different aspects, bring them to the table, acknowledge that there are differences, but that those differences are not bad, right? Um, and I think there's a lot of different systems in place or communities in place at Kingston that provide people with that support. Um, for example, Yellow House is one of them. Um, do either of you have experience with Yellow House? Yeah, a little bit. I mean, they only really opened up this year for uh, full business, so not too much. But yeah, I've been there uh, once or twice, I think, and I know some of the initiatives they do. Mm -hmm. So, Sam, maybe you could speak on this a little bit, but is there any other community that you find that like you were able to explore different communities and maybe find something that you identify with as well? Um, yeah, for sure. Uh, one thing about uh, my, something that's really important to my uh, identity is being non-binary and being part of the uh, LGBTQ community. Um, and I went to a Catholic high school, uh, one of two here in Kingston. Um, and that was something that I really struggled with um, in high school was not even the fact that I realized I was queer um, in that uh, sense, because like my family was very supportive and all of that. But the fact that at school, it was very much something that I was considered provocative for talking about it, for mentioning it, for wearing a pride pin on my uniform. Um, just even simple things like that, just being outspoken about, yes, I'm queer, that was considered being very pr provocative. And it was like that for all queer students at my school. Um, it was very much of like, the, you know, the gay couple holding hands. Oh my gosh, that's so, I can't believe they're doing that. And so because of that, I actually started my high school's uh, LGBTQ safe space um, with another trans student there. But it didn't really get lifted off the ground very much because the chaplaincy director was very much, um, again, trying to sweep this under the rug of we won't talk about it. It's we, we recognize that you're there, but you don't need much else beyond that. Um, and then so once I left high school, coming to Queens and seeing pride flags on every door um, and just seeing how many communities um, are recognized uh, and how many clubs recognize uh, the LGBTQ community was really, really special to me. Um, and I smile every time I walk through a door that has safe space and a pride flag on it. Um, and that just makes me feel at home. So all those systems are in place, right, to kind of try and, and start conversation and like make safe spaces, as we said. And, and I feel like systemically, there's a lot of things that are being done right. But do you find in your personal experiences, whether it's a conversation about race or sexual orientation or whatever with your peers, do you find that that has been a challenge at Queens? Um, or do you find that pretty much everyone is on the same uh, page? 
for me, the biggest challenge has actually been um, getting professors and other faculty members to um, acknowledge my proper pronouns and then use them accordingly, um, which I think is something that's very interesting because at the start of every semester in every class, the teacher says, my pronouns are she, her, or he, him, and feel free to share yours. And it's going to be a very nice, warm, soft environment for all of us to be ourselves. But then I, I do share my pronouns and I say, yes, I am in fact they, them, or I sign off all my emails to my professors that way. And I still get emails back saying, um, like I had a professor that emailed, that forwarded one of my emails to somebody else and said she in reference to me, even though I had signed the email they, them. So it's like right in front of them. And they're told that they have to acknowledge this and be... Um, supportive about this, but I find very few professors are actually putting in the effort. Um, and that's a that's a daily struggle for me. That's so unfortunate that, you know, systemically we're told there are systems in place at Queens that like invite people to share their gender identity and their orientation, but on a micro level, it's not necessarily being followed um, or respected. Have you been in touch with different supports at Queens? Do you feel like there's other like resources available? Um, or did you even feel like comfortable reaching out to the professor and being like, hey, I don't like this? For sure. So one of my professors, um, I just kind of let it slide under the rug every time he misgendered me. I was like, you know what? I have bigger battles to fight. That's kind of like my uh, kind of go-to motto when it comes to stuff like this. But my roommate was actually in the same class with me. And she, with my permission, went up to him after class and said, hey, Sam would never say this, but um, these are their pronouns. Could you like make an effort? And he was like, oh my gosh, I'm so sorry. I didn't realize. Um, and then the next class, he misgendered me again. And he continued to do it. And after that point, every time he misgendered me, he would apologize to my roommate um, instead of me and say, oh, my gosh, I'm so sorry. I just slipped up to my roommate instead of me. And at that point, it's like I'm cut out of the conversation altogether. And when it is a professor um, that's not like an associate, like a full professor is doing these things, it makes it really hard to speak up about it um, because you know, I'm a fifth year student, I'm looking for master's opportunities in the biology program here at Queens. So if I speak up about it, and maybe I've, this is a very senior professor who's in a really um, important position at the school, well, that kind of, you know, it could reflect poorly on me, even though it doesn't, it can. Um, and so I would never name a professor specifically by name, um, but whenever Queen sends out surveys of like students experience and stuff like that, I'm always like professors do not care about pronouns. It's just for show. This is something that needs to change. Uh, will it change? I have no idea. I do have like experiences that mirror Sam in this where like you find that like on in the micro everyday interactions, the systems are not being supported. Well, uh, I'll start by saying, I guess, um, from like my interactions with multiple different people, 
it seems to me that when it comes to like different, I guess, conflicts with identity, if you, you want to call it that, um, or issues of identity, I guess we can say, topics like gender identity tend to be less accepted um, by the broader public than something like race or something like um, sexuality even. Um, and I think the reason why is because people feel like, partly because people feel like it's a choice, whereas like obviously you don't choose what race you're born as, but people do feel like gender identity is. Um, and, and also it's something that hasn't been in like mainstream discourse for as long as something like race, for instance. So I think a lot of people are um, less accustomed to talking about it. And then for that reason, it feels like um, alternative gender identities are less accepted, at least in you know my experience. So with that being said, I, I, I'm like, so I identify as cisgender. So I haven't had any experiences like that um, necessarily. But uh, when it comes to something like, like my racial or ethnic identity, um, I would say Queens overall is pretty, pretty good for it, I would like to say, <laughs> um, at least on a personal basis. Like I, I, I personally haven't experienced as many like racial microaggressions as um, I have in the past. Um, and I certainly have not been called any slurs or anything since I've been to Queens, which is a good start. <laughs> That's a good start for sure. But I think what we're seeing here is that even though something we've all heard this word like EDII, EDINI, equity, diversity, inclusion, and indigeneity, they're kind of all grouped together, but we're seeing just off of this one interaction that different issues are treating very, very differently. And ultimately, we have to kind of like advocate for ourselves as people of color, as people that um, identify um, differently than the cis heteronormative person. And so, Sam, let's get back to you. What do you think has been your biggest support at Queens? And like, do you feel like there are even resources within the current systems that can support students going through this right now as someone in fourth year? I do think that there there are like student resources available. Um, I think more in terms of community of like there's a lot of clubs um, that are available for queer for queer students, um, and so you can really find your community that way and feel less alone. And I really do think that that's a huge part of it to make sure that you know that you're not the only person that is dealing with this. But on the other hand, I don't think that Queens is where it should be in terms of helping um, students li like me who have dealt with the misgendering. So earlier we mentioned Yellow House, and it's actually a pretty cool resource for people who identify as queer and people who are um, like from BIPOC communities. Um, and it's especially like kind of tackling the intersectionality of those. And um, as Kai said, um, a lot of different clubs are kind of, were kind of out of commission for the past two years because everything was online, but we've seen a lot of great things from this resource. And I mentioned this because, so I'm a I identify as a person of color, but I'm also a second year student who works as um, within residence life. And so I've been exposed to a lot of different resources at Queens. And if someone is 
going through trying to uh, learn about this new identity that they or this new experience that they seem to identify with. Um, it's a really great resource to find your people. So Kai, I want to talk a little bit more about your experience for a bit. So you mentioned that coming into Queens or like the campus bubble was very difficult or different, I guess, because you went from a, I guess, not so progressive town to a very progressive city. And then on top of that, once you got here, you found yourself immersed in conversations that weren't really happening before. That can be a lot for someone who's also going through a pandemic and a lot of life changes at the same time. So um, let alone moving across the whole country. So can you speak a little bit more about like, how did you feel at home with this? Do you feel at home? Do you feel like the the supports um, were there? Were you able to find the supports you needed, I guess? Um, I do feel like there are, there are a lot of resources at Queens. Um, as for whether they're well-known and accessible might be a different topic. Um, I do think um, Yellow House has been doing a great job. I am a student mentor with QSuccess. Um, and so I've, some of my mentees were telling me about their experiences with Yellow House, which is good, but even more so than that, it's good to know that um, Yellow House is making the resources easily accessible and easy to find. I will also say um, I am... Uh, I'm the AMS chair for the University Council on Anti-Racism and Equity, long name. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, with that, so I'm I'm sort of very familiar with the types of supports that are available, at least in fa- insofar as um, like racialized groups are concerned. Um, and so like, I know there there are other initiatives in the making as well. Uh, one, one of which actually, we had a meeting yesterday, uh, one of which is the, the nest it's going to be like this health side um or building facility in the health side building um uh that is intended to promote like edia I didn't really mention this earlier but i think when it comes to racial identity it tends to be more of systemic problems than sort of day-to-day encounters um obviously that's not always the case i do know people who have been called slurs in kingston <laughs> so um it's not exclusively like that, but I think in general, it tends to be um, problems that are sort of baked into the the communities that we're in. So, um, for example, like my my dad is first generation immigrant and he comes from like a village in the jungle in Indonesia, basically. <laughs> so, you know, for someone like him, he's not going to have access to the same financial resources as someone whose family has been in Canada for 400 years and came from like background of like three generations of doctors or lawyers or whatever it may be, right? Um, And so when it comes to like, obviously not everyone who is an immigrant comes from, you know, a village in the jungle, like my dad. Mm -hmm. But um, I do notice that a lot of my peers who are um, children of immigrants from places from like the global South, especially, tend to, have to put in more effort to get the same access to resources than other people. So for example, like there's a lot of, (laughs) there's a lot of events and uh, socials and things like that 
through Queens at the Yellow House, for example. But I find myself not able to go to a lot of them because I'm working, you know, 30 hours a week, right? Especially like weeknights. So it's like, it's, that's sort of just a, st a systemic thing, right? Like you can't, I can't go because I have to work, but then I also have less access to opportunities or extracurriculars, things like that, because I need to be able to afford like basic necessities. I think you touched on something so important that like this idea of not being able to afford basic necessities is such a like, it's such a real issue. I think 50, uh, they were telling us that 54% of Queen students lack food security. That's insane. 54%. Um, and this number might have changed. I was told this during dawn training. If the number is that high, then that means the accessibility to resources, the accessibility, the like resources to actually be able to advocate for yourself is also very limited. If you could talk to yourself or you could talk to other students who come from backgrounds, as you described, what would you tell them about coming to some place like Queens? Um, well, realistically, the nice the nice thing I've noticed is it seems that um, universities, it's, it's not so much like the United States where some universities are a million times more expensive than others. So that's something you have to consider. It seems like Canada is pretty standard. So insofar as the specific university, I don't think it really would matter whether you're going to Queens versus McGill versus somewhere else. Mm -hmm. um, but uh, I think, I don't think Queens is an exclusive university um, by any stretch. Like, yes, there's a lot of work to be done in a lot of areas, but the good thing is that there is work being done. And like, you can really, you can really see that, I think, especially if you're involved in some of the more um, administrative uh, elements of the university. Um, and of course, there's a lot of bureaucracy and stuff. So some of this stuff takes a lot longer than it really should. Um, but it is, and and honestly, like I think there is the community of Queens itself, um, overall, like especially among students, uh, is very welcoming in a lot of ways. And again, it's not this isn't like a you know universal rule. I know there's some not so nice people, uh, maybe, mm -hmm. but um, I know like overall, like a lot of my friends um, are very you know open-minded and accepting of people from all different sort of backgrounds and also really um, willing to sort of understand the different problems that people experience. So I think the Queens community um, overall is pretty welcoming, I guess. Sam, I want to get back to what we were talking about with you. I feel like there's a gap in the resources accessible, right? And so for someone going through misgendering as an, a non-binary student, that could be a really big hit to someone's identity, right? Like you feel invalidated, you feel not taken seriously. What would you wish your professors to know? Um, systemically, I think um, it's really important for um, administrators, people that are above professors to be able to have um, education in place. Because I think a lot of the time misgendering comes from, first of all, just a lack of practice, not knowing anybody that has different pronouns. And it can be kind of uh, a shocker at first to, um, I know that there have been times that I've accidentally misgendered uh, people. 
um, because it does take a second to remember and to realize and then to switch the uh, flick the switch in your brain. Um, and honestly, that comes from practice, but it also comes from education. But I feel like it needs to go deeper than what it's doing. It needs to be deeper than um, he, him in your email sign off. It needs to be deeper than your pronouns um, in brackets on your Zoom name and saying that that's good enough. It needs to be deeper than that. Um, and it needs to become an everyday thing where even if you're cis, it's still you should be introducing yourself with your pronouns. Because that's the other thing as well as in a class where a teacher says, feel free to share your pronouns, but everyone else around me is cisgender, they won't feel the need to do that. And so that makes me the odd person out for having to share in the first place. And that makes me very hesitant to share. Um, although I don't think students should be forced to share either if that's not something they want to do. Um, so I think just in terms of in general, I think there needs to be more education. And then on an individual teacher level, I think it's really important for every professor to realize that it's possible that they might have a student that is not cis in their class and might have different pronouns than you're used to. And you have to be willing to try. Because um, I find the biggest thing is that they say, oh, I forgot, or oh, like, I'm just not used to it. And they just use that as an excuse to misgender you all the time. And it gets to a point where, you know, it's been 10, we're 10 weeks into the semester, let's say, um, and you're still misgendering me. That's you just not caring. And I can tell. But like, if by the second week or third week, you're good, I can tell you're trying and you're really putting in an effort. Um, so it, it really just is a matter of whether or not you respect your students on a level deeper than just the fact that they're your students. Um, and I feel like more professors need to uh, come to terms with that. So going off of that, what are the different steps that you both see as a way to create an inclusive campus culture at Queens in general? I think there should be mandatory um, training for uh, professors, I think even for students as well, on all types of diversity and equity training. Like, I think it should be mandatory for all students to know about all types of students that are coming into your Queen's community, whether that's someone who has a different race or ethnic background, someone with a different gender identity, someone with a different socioeconomic background. I think it's important that everyone learns how how to um, how to talk about these issues on on a deeper level, and I think all students and all teachers and all faculty and administration um, should be uh, should be mandated to to have this type of training. I know for, I know for like I don't know if it's across the campus, but I know certain like groups of university staff it is mandatory. So like uh, hospitality employees. Uh, I know this because I am one. <laughs> um, we have to do it like, I don't remember if it's every year or if like you just do it once or whatever. So like it does exist. The problem I think with it is it's just one of those things that, um, I mean, I don't really remember how in depth it goes, but it feels like it's just one of those things that, you know, if you are an employee at the university, you just sort of do it and get it done with and then move on with your life. Um, sort of like OSHA training, I guess. Um, but uh, yeah, it's like, I think 
most people just don't really internalize it, I guess. Um, obviously, like the university can implement policies or programs or add more resources or whatever it may be to make the campus more inclusive. But ultimately, the only way for it to be the most inclusive it can be is for the people themselves to change. And some people, like, you know, if you have a professor one year away from retirement, probably they're not going to make too much of a difference in that last year. But I think, I think really it's um, largely a question of time in conjunction with um, proper education and resource and things like that. So it's, even if you have everything in place, tomorrow it's not going to be perfect. It's going to take time for people to really understand and internalize sort of, you know, the discussions. And then, you know, maybe in a few years or, I don't know, a few decades, <laughs> um, it'll be a little bit better. I agree with Kai's point on um, the people need to want it because trainings, as you both have said, exist. Um, you do it, it cannot, it, like, it's not usually the most impactful. Something I found, I've been working in advocacy for the past like six years. And I think something that I found is to be the most impactful is connecting with people through your stories. And I think that's why it's so impactful what you both are doing is because like you're putting a real name to these stories and like a, a real voice to these experiences. People I feel like are inherently good. And if they know that someone, a real person um, is going through something challenging, a lot of times they will make the effort to see what they could do in that situation um, or be like, okay, how can I help this person? And so that's why I feel like storytelling is so important. It's a lot of mental labor though, that a lot of, that I don't feel like is talked about is not en enough. So on that note, um, do you, either of you have words of encouragement for students coming in? Um, I'll say for me, the thing that's really made me feel like my university experience is good, I guess, <laughs> is um, just like building a network of friends. And like, it can, I, I know I found it really difficult first and second year, again, partly due to COVID, um, to, uh, to connect with people and make friends and, you know, hang out with people for pretty obvious reasons, I think. Um, but once you can actually, you know, build these connections and have people that you can share your stories with, or people who you might relate to on, you know, some sort of level, um, then I feel like it makes the university experience feel a lot more welcoming and a lot more optimistic. Um, especially like, and especially when it comes to things like, uh, you know, racial identity, for example. I know like Queens has a lot of clubs um, for a lot of different groups. Um, by no means, of course, every imaginal group but um, for a lot of like racialized groups for a lot of um, I don't know <laughs> like mm -hmm. 2s LGBTQIA groups and so on and so forth um, that uh, that I would I personally would encourage students to reach out to it can be kind of daunting especially like in your first year to try to like m make your way into this group of people who you know you might think are all like buddy friends with each other already and you're sort of the new person um, but honestly like a lot of students are really welcoming I guess especially in clubs so I would encourage 
going to clubs and also just talking to people to sort of build that network of, you know, people you can relate to and talk to and things like that. Yeah, I completely agree um, in terms of like clubs and communities like that is where you will find your people um, and people that understand you, um, even if they have different uh, backgrounds than you. Um, and I think it's really important to find that support community outside of maybe your classes. But I also think it's really important to feel like you can talk to either like a TA or the professor or um, your program director like someone in your someone in your stream of classes that you can talk to about certain things um whether that's you know hey my professor said some things that are kind of suspicious or um you know my professor is forcing everyone to go on a paid class trip that I can't afford um just something like that of like if you need to be able to talk to someone you should have someone there that you can trust and someone that won't um betray that trust and I feel like for the most part TAs are really good resources um for that that they can definitely help kind of talk professors down um a lot of the times because they're very close with them um but there are other other services as well too that that can do that for you and I think those are really important to to know and to get used to Thank you for listening to this episode of The Shift Podcast. For a list of all the resources mentioned in this episode, please visit the Shift Podcast website at queensu.ca slash campuswellnessproject slash shift dash podcast. If you'd like to get involved in The Shift Podcast or have questions or comments in general, feel free to email us at queensshiftproject at queensu.ca.